Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey everybody, it's Dan from the Virtuast. Real quick before we start, do me a favor. Can you go to voxmedia.com slash podsurvey and just tell us how you listen to podcasts, what you like, what you don't like. You can do me two favors and actually just answer every question in a way that favors Virtuast. That would make me really happy. Anyhow, it's voxmedia.com slash podsurvey. We're trying to make everything better, so your feedback is greatly appreciated. Okay, this week on the interview episode, I'm actually taking a step back. Casey Newton interviewed Alex Stamos live at South by Southwest. Alex is Facebook's former head of security. Obviously, platforms are in the news. The relationship between our democracy, our culture, and these huge social platforms is more in question than ever. Casey writes a newsletter about that stuff every day called The Interface. You can go to theverge.com slash interface to check that out. But Casey interviewed Alex live at South by Southwest. It was a pretty amazing conversation. Alex has deep insight and how Facebook thinks and how Mark Zuckerberg thinks and how Zuckerberg is thinking about this big pivot to privacy that he says Facebook is making. It is well worth your time. You might have to slow it down because they both talked really fast, but check this out. Hey, everybody. My name is Casey Newton. I'm Silicon Valley editor of The Verge. I'm really excited. Uh, also, I want you all to give yourselves a round of applause for caring about democracy. Just quick. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, the title of this panel is Saving Democracy, so we've given ourselves 30 minutes. Hopefully that will be sufficient. And to help us do it, I'm going to welcome onto the stage uh, Facebook's former chief security officer. He's currently at Stanford. We're going to talk about the work he's doing there as well. Please welcome Alex Samos. All right. So the week's big news, uh, Mark Zuckerberg wrote a very long blog post where he pledged to bring encryption and ephemeral messaging to the entire suite of Facebook messaging apps. And you had a couple tweets that I'm going to read quickly here. You said, there are fundamental trade-offs uh, that have to be made here. Openness versus data protection, privacy versus safety, platform power versus individual freedom, government power versus citizen privacy, authenticity versus anonymity. And you describe these as kind of a series of dials uh, that can, that, and that like for a long time, Facebook has been uh, turning these between three and eight. And now Zuckerberg has decided he wants to slam a bunch of these dials to either one or 11. Talk to us about these trade-offs and what will be the ramifications for, for the democracy and the world we live in. Yeah, so one of the, the big challenges all the social media companies face is there's a bunch of fundamental trade-offs that are very poorly recognized by the government and media and other critics, yeah. right? So the, the, the classic trade-off in engineering is you can have something done correctly, quickly, or cheaply, right? Pick two of three. Right. And it turns out that you know, if you want to do something like keep people safe online, to do so, you need to know a lot about people to know if they're bad guys. It's very, very hard to build a social network where you only know stuff about bad guys and you ignore the good guys. If you want to respect people's individual rights, of, of free expression, then that means you have to be very careful to have rules around how you do it. And Facebook has, like I said, tweaked back and forth. 
started as this thing just at Harvard, very closed. Newsfeed made it very open, very, you know, that the big change of privacy was a, a huge deal. And so that was kind of like turning the privacy way down um, and has tweaked it back and forth. But I think from Zuck's perspective, his problem is he's getting it on both sides, yeah. right? That whatever decision he makes, he will have people who will criticize him for both. In some cases, the same newspaper, the same week will make two criticisms. You know, an example of that, the New York Times like to criticize Facebook not keeping people safe from committing suicide on Facebook Live, which I think is actually, that's the correct take, is that Facebook, did, we did not do enough, and I was there at the time, to properly prepare for the impact of allowing teenagers to stream themselves live. And a lot of the anti-suicide stuff we had done at that point was completely inapplicable to video. Um, but then later criticized Facebook's being creepy by preventing people from committing suicide and calling 911 when it looks like people might kill themselves. And those are both legitimate takes, you just can't have both at once. And I think what Mark has done is he's decided, I can't be in the middle anymore. The yeah. middle is where you lose continuously. So we're gonna, we're gonna make this, this trade-off incredibly stark and we're gonna slam as far as to one side. And um, the truth is, if he's going to do that, he only has one, one choice, which is a slam towards the side of technology. Because the other side of like keeping everybody safe is probably actually not practical. So, but you can keep everybody's information private. Right. So what are the ramifications of a world where all of our messages are encrypted? There's two kinds of bad things, two classes of bad things that happen on social media. One is the bad things that people do to each other where one person is a victim, right? And so that is, if, I, if, if a bad guy reaches out and harasses somebody, if somebody doxes somebody, if they send a death threat, in the, the case of children, it's to reach out to children and to groom them and to sexually exploit them, which is actually, of all the things, that is the worst thing that happens on, online every day. We never talk about it. Our society has just kind of moved on, but that is the worst thing that happens every single day is that the sexual exploitation of children. Those have victims, right. right? And so if you have a victim, then you have a participant who does not want to be part of it. And so in a, a world where things are encrypted and ephemeral, there are options to keep those people safe. Those options are definitely reduced, um, you know, we had to deal with this when we rolled out end-to-end encryption as an option for Messenger, is things that we had put in place to detect when people are reaching out to teenage girls online and trying to groom them, that could be detected. But some of it was able to be replaced through um, analysis of metadata and that kind of stuff. And then also by really beefing up the ability of the victim to report it, and then to beef up the ability to respond quickly. Right. The other class of issues online are the things that every participant is a voluntary participant. And this ranges from terrorists who want to organize terrorist attacks by talking to each other to anti-vaxxers who want to talk about being anti-vax, right? Yeah. And that is, a, that is a class of issues that will now, for the most part, disappear yeah. from the ability because you are, you know, adults generally are now opting in to be part of a discussion where there might be real world ramifications. But since all of them have privacy and all of them have consented to it, for the most part, that will be invisible. Yeah. And that is the entire class of issues that now Facebook is effectively saying that is not our problem. Right. Like that's how I'm reading it. I don't have any insight in here, but when I read it, that's, I see him punting on that class of issues and that's the class of issues where he, gives, he can't win. And, yeah. and the anti-vaccine I think is probably the best example of that, that we've gone to the point of where educated adults, you know, people in the media want their decisions about what data they're able to access and what they're able to say to each other to be controlled by these non-democratically accountable half trillion dollar companies. Right. And it's like, if you're at that point, Anti-vax, we all talk about it because we're all like, 
educated urbanites. I mean, I hate anti-vaxxers. I have three kids, one of whom's here, and the idea that one of them is going to get a disease that should have been wiped out in the 19th century makes me sick, right? But I also know the crappy part of freedom is other people having freedom. Sure. Me having freedom is easy. Yeah. Other people having freedom is hard. It's the worst. Right, it's the okay. worst. And so, so, and I think that's the class of things that he's like, I can't win, yeah. so we're going to wipe our ability out to, to deal with anything. Sure, okay, so, uh, so I write a, a newsletter about these issues, and I, I feel like I mostly write about unintended consequences. Facebook mm -hmm. is at this enormous scale, it makes a decision, and then we just sort of, you know, wait to see what happens next. You know, what you've just described is a world in which life might become uh, much easier for somebody who wants to exploit a child or uh, you know, like plot terror. Um, and how, like, how do you feel about the fact that this platform is um, like going to have all these ramifications and we just sort of have to wait and see? Like, do, do we have any sense that this is an informed decision? Like, can data inform this? Or is this one where Mark says, well, because I can't win on this front, like, let's just encrypt everything and see what happens next? Yeah. So again, those are two different. I think on the child stuff, there's a lot that can be done. Okay. And so my hope is that they, I, I was really happy to see that he explicitly, so first he explicitly talked about child exploitation and terrorism. Facebook traditionally, one of the things that drove me nuts about the company is the company doesn't want to talk about the fact that the world's a horrible dark place. Yeah. And so if you don't talk about that, then you can't engage on the issues. And so the fact that he used the magic word terrorism was shocking to me, hmm. right? Like that just jumped that the fact that that made it through like the entire comms filter of all the people who tried to edit that document before <laughs> it went out, I thought was, was a good sign. Yeah. And so the fact that they're going to focus on that is great. But you're right, on the other things where people are able to do, but this is the funny thing is, I think Facebook's in this position where they, they, get, they get blamed for things that are the, this is the emergent property of the fact that every adult in the world is about to have a pocket supercomputer with always on connectivity. This is just the truth, mm -hmm. right? The truth is, is that anti-vax is gonna exist. Terrorists are gonna be able to communicate with each other. The question is, can you provide a service that is as responsible as possible and where you mitigate as much of the harm as possible that even if harms are happening elsewhere, that at least within the place that you're you are operating that you're doing the best you can. And I think on the direct stuff they can, but I think on a lot of the content moderation stuff, they're not. And, and the place where that is going to be most harmful is probably not in the United States. It's gonna be places like India, right? Like right. you already see this in India with violence that has been sparked from rumors that are being spread on WhatsApp. Now, communal violence between ethnic sects in India is as old as India itself, right? The country was born into violence and a, a horrible split with Pakistan. Like it's not something, but the internet makes this a bigger issue. But the, this is the flip side. What would it take? I want people in the media to start to engage with the issue here. Yeah. You have to think, well, what would it actually take to stop people from spreading horrible rumors. Oh, that's such on a good WhatsApp. idea. What so one do? of the things that these platforms could do is to stop providing viral sharing mechanics that right. enables someone who is, you know, participated in this centuries-long conflict from, you know, being a suggested group on Facebook, right? right. And we just saw this with the anti-vaxxers. You join a new mom's group, an algorithm says, "Hey, why don't you join an anti-vax group too?" Yeah. And like that was true until this week, right? Which is and that is where there might be an upside to this move is that this move probably eliminates a bunch of those different amplification. The two things that cause the most dangerous amplification on Facebook are the advertising platform and the recommendation engine, partially because of just the size of the amplification, partially because those are the two products that allow you to put information in front of people where they did not ask for it, yeah. um, especially advertising. Like you can find strangers and put something in front of them. And so that's the riskiest, but depending on the structure of this, it could, evolve in a way where that kind of stuff is, is much more difficult. And so that might be the safety upside. That's though why exactly the product design is gonna be critical. And, and I, what I would like to see is I'd like to, this to happen in public. Right. Like I, I don't think they should just go in a room in two years from now, it rolls out. Like 
my suggestion to Facebook is there needs to be a series of conversations, not just in the United States, not just in the West, where you have all these people, because there's a lot of people who are going to flip out. Law enforcement's going to flip out, but they're going to be against people in civil liberties groups. You're going to have a, a various governments who want content moderation, various governments who, who, who think there's too much moderation. You've got to have this in a public manner. They, that can't just all be lobbying on the back end, and then we see this weird Frankenstein come out, and then nobody understands why they made the decisions. We should understand what trade-offs they made. Would all this just be easier if these companies were a lot smaller? Like Elizabeth Warren just said, like, why don't we just break these companies up? Well, so I got to give Elizabeth Warren credit in that her uh, paper on this explicitly talks about antitrust being used for for competition policy, mm -hmm. which is what antitrust should be used for. Mm -hmm. So th we've gone to this weird place where people with completely diametric, diametrically opposed motives all believe antitrust is the right deal. So you've got progressives saying, I want more moderation on Facebook, break them up. And then you have the Breitbart crew saying, there's too much moderation on Facebook, break them up. They can't both be right. And the truth is, is neither one of them is right. All of these dials exist no matter how big your social platform is. The question is, is it one big guitar amp or multiple small amps? And I, and I think there are trade-offs here. If it's multiple smaller companies, then you end up with more choice, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're like, this is the Disney World safe place. And then this is the wild, crazy 4chan place, and I can choose which one I want. The downside is, and when you talk about organized actors, the going smaller means the chance of catching them is much smaller. Hmm. So we're living in this world where we, we look at the 2016 election and Russian interference through the lens of the fact that we only know about Russian interference that was found and caught by companies that care, mm -hmm. right? So everything in the Mueller indictment about activity on Facebook our team found and voluntarily turned over to the special counsel's office. That was not found by the government. That was not found by outside researchers. That was found by us. Other companies have not looked, or they've looked and not talked about it. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, is I was able to have a team that had ex-NSA Russian-speaking Intel analysts. We had the ability to build a machine learning algorithm to look at every single advertisement run in the 2016 election. Reddit does not. Pinterest does not. 4chan doesn't want to, but they wouldn't, you know, yeah. even if they did, right? And and so that's the other thing that you trade off is if you have more, you can have more choice with smaller guitar amps. Right. God, we're pushing that metaphor, right? Really you can hard, have smaller yeah. companies and more choice. But the flip side is, is then the capabilities of any one company. And so I think if, if we're going to end up with smaller companies, then the other thing we have to do is we have to facilitate them working together in a way that they are pooling their resources in a way that's not happening right now. All right. And, and but we'll that, talk, that, yeah. that's actually a very complicated legal issue, it turns out, too. And maybe we'll, we'll talk some more about what the government can do at the end. You yeah. know, uh, there's also been this debate that I'm fascinated by. So Zuckerberg uh, has this blog post and some folks like me say, wow, this seems like a really big deal. He's saying the future of the company is around encrypted messaging. And then you have other people who say, whoa, 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 let's not take this quite so seriously. This is basically just a product roadmap for messaging products. Uh, you seem like you took it pretty seriously. Like you call this a burn the boats moment to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to quote from my favorite movie, right? Yeah. You know, when Cortez reached the new world, he burned his ships. I avoided doing a Sean Connery impression there. You're welcome. Um, but stay, but come, come up afterwards and I'll do it. Yeah. <laughs> right, well, I'll do it when it's not being recorded. Okay. Yeah, so I, I do see it as him being serious. I also don't think he knows what the outcome is, mm -hmm. right? Mark Zuckerberg is sitting on more data about what kind of stuff people want to do online than anybody else on the planet, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, it's somewhat hard for us to reverse engineer his incentives, but knowing that he knows exactly what people are doing of every category of people on the planet and what direction it's going, what this indicates to me is a couple of things. One, he's giving up on newsfeed and giving up on public, right? So mm -hmm. apparently his data from this decision shows that the I want to be public or semi-public and to have lots of people be able to read my stuff, that that is a declining desire yep. of consumers, yep. right? He's giving up on the web. And so 
doing end-to-end -end encryption in a web browser, effectively impossible. So unless they have some kind of massive crash project to change W3C standards and all this kind of stuff, realistically, they're not going mobile first. They're going to have to go mobile only, which yeah. is pretty crazy. And he gave up on China, which I think is less about data and more about just realistically under the Xi regime, everything is going the other direction. And there's just no practical way that under any terms of any deal would they allow Facebook to operate. WeChat is effectively a part of the state. The Ministry of State Security has people sitting at WeChat. You would not do any deal with any American company when you have that kind of power over your domestic audience. And so I think those are the trends he's probably looking at, but I don't think he knows what the outcome is because nobody's ever done this before. So we know point-to-point -point messaging, group messaging, and stories are things you can do over end-to-end -end encryption. Nobody ever uses it, but WhatsApp has a story, a Snapchat-like functionality. And so we know those things work. Nobody's ever built like a newsfeed, and I think just conceptually, it would be extraordinarily difficult to build something that is a full copy of Facebook that's end-to-end -end encrypted. But what you might be able to do is build something that's like Instagram, right? So data is available to you in an encrypted way, and all of the intelligent stuff Instagram does to figure out what you want will have to be done client-side. And then the other thing people haven't talked about that has been kind of a quiet thing is there's been a bunch of Facebook research papers on doing AI in the ARM processor on CPUs. They actually have released a... Um, a library to make this super fast. And so they've been researching, can you move a bunch of the machine learning stuff out of the super expensive Intel server into distributed into the phones? So if you add that plus that, you, you can probably get there. But from Mark's perspective, he doesn't know. And he's got 18 months of work already. So you know, merging these namespaces, doing end-to-end -end encryption, my guess is they're gonna focus on that. They're gonna try to build everything to be extensible with open APIs internally. And then once they know, like we have this all merged, it's working, then he can start to push the, the Instagram feed, the Instagram public stuff, comments, groups, all those people to port over. The real question is what speed that happens. And as they give up this ad revenue, are they able to find other revenue to, to match it? Right. Right. And yeah. that's, that's, a, that's a super open question, which is why I think he just kind of committed the company to it. Because if everybody was worrying about that every day, they would get none of this done. Yeah. Hey, everybody. It's Neil. We got to take one step away for a quick ad, and then we'll come right back to Casey and Alex Stamos. Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for the podcast comes from Hims. Look, we all need help, but for some of us guys, it can be a real challenge to be so vulnerable. There are just some things we'd rather keep to ourselves. Hims knows how you feel, which is why they're looking to provide you the help you need discreetly. Introducing Hims, a men's healthcare product looking to provide simple and convenient access to science-backed treatments for men. The entire process is 100% online, so you can get a new routine of improving your overall health in private. If prescribed, your medication ships directly to you for free and in discreet packaging. No waiting rooms, no pharmacy visits. So while it can be tough to deal with this part of your life, it doesn't mean you have to do it alone. Start your free online visit today at hymns.com slash verge. That's H-I-M-S dot com slash verge for your personalized treatment options. Hymns.com slash verge. 
prescription to require an online consultation with a healthcare provider who will determine if appropriate. Restrictions apply. See hymns.com slash verge for details and important safety information. Subscription required. Price varies based on product and subscription plan. All right, back to it. Let me ask about content moderation. Even in this world where everything is end-to-end encrypted, uh, Facebook is going to have to pay attention to the stuff that people are posting uh, yeah. in the various feeds as they are today. Uh, I recently wrote a story about content moderators and some of the working conditions uh, there, which are which are really, really rough. Uh, how should Facebook and other platforms think about moderation going forward? Should these employees uh, be paid more? Should this be a full-time job? Yeah, so you can always pay people more. I think for specifically for content moderation, you have to think about what the mental health impacts are. I think I thought your story was great and really helped outline those. I didn't have any content moderators working for me. I had a child safety team. I had a counterterrorism team. And the emotional and psychological impact on those people is pretty extreme, yeah. right? We were able to do a bunch of things to support them because they're full-time employees. The fundamental issue here is that the companies, I think they pretty much all do this, they use companies like Accenture to provide their content moderators. And you can't provide that kind of like intense mental health support on the, through the contractual barrier of a different employer, right. right? Like Accenture is never gonna do more than what is minimally contractually required to help their moderators. And so in the long run, this will reduce the need for growth of content moderation, maybe this change, but my guess would be 10 years from now, Facebook still has the same number of content moderators. Hmm. They're doing different kinds of things. I think they're gonna have to bring most of them in-house so they can provide them with support, especially the people that work on like the really high risk stuff, the harassment and bullying, the child stuff, terrorism, like looking all day at beheading videos really starts to mess you up. And there's actually some, there's been some psychology research in that people that work in these fields, it's sometimes gender biased, but like men will get violent. There's more violence at home for people who work in these kinds of jobs. Women sometimes become cutters. Like there's, there are outcomes and it has been reasonably studied because you have the same problem with police officers, social service workers, for people who have to work with these horrible things. Yeah. And so the company, I think, does have a responsibility to do that, and they can't do it while these people are contracted. Talk about some of the things that you did for your people who were doing these really kind of high-risk jobs. Yeah, so we, when I was there, we built like a new resiliency function between a number of different, you know, my team didn't do it by ourselves, but we had people who participated in this. And so we brought in like a mental health professional. It turns out the laws here make it hard. Companies can't just employ psychologists and psychiatrists because of HIPAA and a law called ERISA. And so because of the way the laws work, you can't just hire like a PhD, have them on staff to see people as doctors. You have to come up with like a crazy insurance plan. And then you have to offer the insurance plan to all of your employees. It's kind of, it's, it, it is messed up. I think what I would like, honestly, and I'd like the company to come out and say that, because yeah. if Congress is looking for things to do, making small changes to employment law to make it easier to give mental health services to people is the kind of thing that's actually positive. Yeah. You know, we did that kind of stuff, but you can't do any of that for contractors because it becomes what's called a co-employment situation. And so legally, you just can't do it. And I think that's why they got to bring them in. Right. Uh, okay. So taking a quick step back from Facebook, last year, you went and you joined Stanford, uh, where among other things, you're working on the Stanford Internet Observatory. G- give us a sense of what you're working on right now. So one thing's going on is effectively everybody in the political sciences and the social sciences wants to study what's going on on the internet. But the problem is, is, you know, let's say you're a specialist in the East Asia studies section at Stanford and they're studying what happened a couple of weeks, you know, over the last several weeks between India and Pakistan. You know, I know we were all distracted by the news, but we came close to, to nuclear war again, which is like a regular thing <laughs> yeah, in the region. Which is like a page five story in America. Right, yeah. yeah, yeah. So if they wanted to go study this thing that's immediately happening, the activation energy to understand what is happening on Twitter, on WhatsApp, on Facebook is so high, they can't do it. And so our thesis is, 
I am not qualified to do that work, right? I, I'm not a social scientist, I'm not a political scientist. What I might be qualified to do is hire a bunch of engineers and data scientists, put the contracts in place for the API access and stuff, build the scraping systems for people that don't have APIs, build a data analysis pipeline, and then build a team of data analysts who don't need special specialization in the social sciences, but can provide the help. And so if, if a professor comes to us and says, man, what's going on in India on Twitter? We could say like, oh yeah, Sally can go help you with that. And Sally has access to an IPython notebook and she's able to pull all this stuff and to do all the work. And then we can bind up. And my thesis is if you make the activation energy low, if you make it simple to access those kinds of resources that we will massively expand the use of it by social scientists, political scientists. And we want to do this first at Stanford, but maybe it's a model that other universities can do. Right, and social scientists are salivating for this, right? I mean, yeah. they, they're desperate to get this kind of information. Right, but it's super hard to find yeah. somebody, like just the structure of academia does not react well to this kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard for them to find a grad student who goes to write R or Python, right? Yeah. Like, but they don't need it. They need yeah. a grad student who understands Indian politics and who can read Hindi and several other languages. And then we'll give them somebody who can write Python and then already have the data sitting up in whatever cloud manufacturer, cloud provider wants to give us free cloud services. Please contact me later if you work at Google, <laughs> Amazon, or Microsoft. That will already have you know terabytes and terabytes of data up there that they can they can go and look at. You know, we've talked a lot about Facebook's role in, in saving democracy. Uh, I wonder if you would maybe speak quickly to what uh, role you see for government here and maybe what you think the, the media should be doing if you want to tee off on right. this. A little bit. So to get a little on my soapbox, yeah. um, there's three groups that really screwed up in 2016. Tech companies screwed up. The government and media also screwed up. And the way I imagine this is you've got Mark Zuckerberg in a hoodie, you've got um, a politician in a suit, and you've got a reporter with like a reporter press hat. Yeah. And the guy in the hoodie is saying, oh man, we made a lot of mistakes. And the government and media people are like, you're right. You really screwed up. Yeah. <laughs> right? So the truth is, is there were three different branches of Russian interference in 2016. I'm going to skip the attacks against infrastructure because that's a, that's a whole other thing. The two information operations, one of them was a pure social media information operation by the Internet Research Agency and a bunch of other organizations in that, in that sphere. Um, the org chart's actually quite complicated. That is mostly the responsibility of social media companies to understand that, to understand that, and to put mitigations in place. There was another, and what is quantitatively almost certainly the more effective attack was the attack by the GRU. So there's three intelligence agencies in Russia, main intelligence agency. GRU is the, Russian, the main intelligence directorate of the Russian military. They work for the uniformed Kremlin officers. They are the ones who broke into John Podesta's email, who broke into the DNC, who broke into Colin Powell's email. There's a whole interesting problem here of how do you protect like guys who used to be in the government and now just grandfathers, but they have national security information in their Gmail account. So that's actually an interesting problem. <laughs> they took that information and then they, they planted it in the media via personas on Facebook and other social media sites. And then the media did their job for them. So Politico ran a John Podesta email live blog. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, every major newspaper covered the claims of the GRU uncritically. And the problem for the media is that claims were true. It was true that Debbie Wasserman Schultz wanted Hillary Clinton to win. It was true that John Podesta had a bunch of embarrassing things in his email. But those emails were leaked in a strategic manner with the goal of changing American democracy. And you start to reach this like difficult place of, is this disinformation? Is it misinformation? It is certainly manipulation. It is certainly an information operation. Which we should and, say the journalists did not know at the time. Well, some of them, some of them suspected, right? And so in like the ninth paragraph of the Washington Post story, you might have 
this might be a Russian information operation, but it doesn't matter because people only read the headlines in the first paragraph. Right. right? So what do we do about that? That's a super hard problem. Yeah. And first, you got to protect the stuff. So you got to protect John Podesta and, and, and such. You got to protect the campaigns. So Bob Lord went over to the DNC. He's a very competent security guy. He's doing a bunch of work. I've been talking to some people who are building campaigns. Campaigns are super hard in that you're like, great, we're going to build an IT infrastructure for two years that's going to be run by 17-year-old volunteers, and we have to stand up against colonels in the German military, right. or um, the Russian military. Maybe the Germans, Maybe. who knows? Oh, God, this is the Germans, too. There's your headline, Sarah, right there. <laughs> I'm sorry, the Russian military. And then you tear the whole thing down. And so there are things that you can do there. I would like to see the media have one-tenth of the examine themselves 10% how much they've examined Facebook and Twitter in this area, right? Yeah. Like, I'd like them to talk about internally and then publish publicly what happened in the editorial rooms when they decided we're going to massively amplify the claims of the GRU. And what I'd like to see is I'd like to see two or three newspapers and maybe NBC or like one or two TV networks. Um, there's one, the big problem here is there's one TV network that would never do anything. But like for all the reasonable people to talk about what are our standards when information has been stolen and we believe we're being manipulated. Right. And I am not a journalistic expert, but I but work you play with one them. on Twitter. I play one on Twitter. Just as a lot of journalists play tech experts on Twitter. <laughs> yeah. So we're all we're all kind of pretending, right? I think there's a lot that could be done if you say, we will cover things, but we won't over amplify them. We'll cover them once. We will not cover the scandal. Like newspapers love to do this thing where they're like, Horrible thing happened. Next day, people talking about horrible thing that we talked about yesterday, right? Now, Congress is having hearings about horrible thing we talked about yesterday that we published the first day, right? Like, like you don't have to do the media ladder of we're going to make this into a massive scandal just because it happens to be true. It's a hard issue, but it's something we got to deal with for 2020 because the companies have done a bunch of stuff around disinformation. The, the hack and leak nothing has changed, right. right? If right now, Amy Klobuchar's inbox was released to all the major media organizations, I don't think anything would be different. Right? I think that's right. That's a perfect place to stop. You guys, thank you so much. Please give a round of applause to Alex Stamos. Thanks, Casey. Great thank job, you man. so much. All right, so that was Casey Newton and Alex Stamos live at South by Southwest talking about the future of Facebook. You should subscribe to Casey's newsletter. It's called The Interface. It is required reading if you are interested in social networks and democracy. We'll be back later this week with another regular Vergecast on Friday. And then next Tuesday, I'm interviewing Shoshana Zuboff, who wrote a book called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, which is all about how our modern economy and our regular conception of how money works in this world has been totally upended by data collection. She's super fascinating. We'll see you on Friday and Tuesday. Your last day of vacation and you found time for a deep tissue massage followed by a long mud bath then a two-hour nap because you're an American Express Platinum Guard member and booked your stay at a fine hotel and resort through Amex Travel which means a 4 p.m. checkout and those relaxing vacation vibes can keep going at the airport in the Centurion Lounge. Just a splash. Before you board the plane back to reality. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your travel experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Support for this podcast comes from Smartwater. Want to get a little more from every sip? Smartwater Alkaline doesn't just taste crisp and pure. It's loaded with everything you need to perform at your best, whether you're running marathons or boardroom meetings. Elevate how you hydrate and pick up a smart water alkaline today. To learn more, visit drinksmartwater.com.